0: comes from Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 through 26 in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters then God said let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good plants yielding seed, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind and the cattle of every kind, and everything that creeps upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. The word of the Lord.
1: In the beginning. Now that's how you begin a book about the beginning. In the beginning, God created. And then, you know, there's this very famous list of the six days of creation and then all that was created on those days. Day one, God creates heavens and earth and light. Day two, God creates the sky and the ground by separating the sky from the ground. Day three is the sea and the dry land and the plants. Day four, day and night, sun and the moon. Day five, the fish, sea creatures, birds. Day six, first God creates the cattle and the wild animals and crawling things. And then on that same day, God creates humankind. Day seven, God famously rests. This seven day format, this list of seven days is kind of a uh, brilliant technique. It makes it more memorable, you know. People like things with numbers and lists. A publisher once told me that he might be interested in my work if I would do more stuff with numbers. I asked, more stuff with numbers? He said, yeah, come up with like some book titles like, you know, five things, uh, five ways to do these things or seven lessons to learn that or 30 days to uh, something or other. Those I can sell, he said. But, you know, not all lists work the same. Some are counting down from the least important to the most, or from the beginning to the end. Some count from the best to the least, the end to the beginning. So what kind of a list is this that we have? Is the creation of humankind the pinnacle of creation, a save the best for last kind of situation? Or is the primary place the number one spot, the let there be light? Usually this list is read with the creation of humankind as God's final and greatest act of creation. And then God rests after God's masterwork, us. But a good argument could be made that day one is the real masterwork. The creation of heaven and earth out of nothing. And then let there be light. Everything that comes after day one would not be possible without the creating of the heavens and the earth. Basically, that day one is creating existence. And then we don't even come along until day six, and we share it with the cattle. (laughs) We need everything that is created before us. We are dependent on all the days before us. But the light? The light doesn't need us. Does it? The earth and the heavens? Do they need us? The fish? Do the sea monsters need us? The wild animals? Of course, there's another kind of list, the no particular order list. It's not a ranking, but an inclusion. Not a top to bottom or bottom to top, but an all in. Rashi, the revered ancient rabbi, says that the list of seven days at the beginning of Genesis is the no particular order kind of list. He writes that it's not an orderly account of what God created, when, and in what order. It is instead an instigation of an existential mystery. The first words of Genesis should not be translated in the beginning God created the heavens and earth as though it is the start of an orderly list, but Rashi says the proper meaning should be translated in the beginning of God creating the heaven and earth. The idea is that God's act of creation is a sort of ongoing thing and the seven days in Hebrew numerology, seven, a holy number, here represents a kind of eternal unit. God completes creation on the seventh day. God rests on the seventh day, which will come at some time. The end of existence? I don't know, sometime at the end of God beginning to create. The list of the order of creation doesn't even give clear information. While it might seem to at a first glance, the more you look at it, the more you read it, it presents a a profound lack of clarity. God says, let there be light. And then seems to be inventing light again on day two and day four as well. And the waters seem to be around and being created at the beginning and on day two and day three. And God tells humankind to be fruitful and multiply. But God also tells that to the fish and the sea creatures and the birds. But God doesn't tell the wild animals or the cattle or the plants to be fruitful and multiply. Why? Well, it's not an orderly list. It's an all in list. It's, a, it's a, a creation. Rashi says that the point here is that these are some of the things that God is doing during that at the beginning of God creating thing. That we're all part of this interdependent creation melange and all that is created is not ordered, but included. Now, all of this uh, existential mystery, as Rashi puts it, is narrated at the beginning of our holy book from above. In the beginning, God creates heaven and earth, and while there's this unity that takes place in this unit of this seven days, inside of that unit there seems to be a separation. Creation looks the opposite. In the beginning God created heaven and earth, the earth was formless and void, dark covered, the deep and the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. The very first thing God does is a division. He makes it possible to see one thing from another. He creates the heaven and earth by separating them, and then he hovers over the earth. He sees it all and he says, it's good. I can barely keep up. Is the first thing that God does is creates this division inside of this unity and pronounce it as good? The rest of chapter 1 narrates the unfolding of creation from this perspective, from above, from God's perspective. I guess at this point in the story, it's the only perspective. Well, that's not completely true, because there is an author, and this author chooses to begin this story from above. The very first thing they tell us God did was to make one thing or no thing into two things, the heaven and the earth. Now you can see one from another, there's a separation inside this unity. The Hebrew Bible is not the only tradition that narrates the beginning creation from above. So does the Babylonian creation myth, myth, which is so similar to the Hebrew creation story that clearly they had the same origin. Also, the Japanese and Iroquois narrate creation from above, and everyone's Favorite indie hip-hop collective, Doomtree, begins their treatise on Capitalism Alienation, The Grand Experiment, from above. Maybe there are some stories that can only be understood by starting from that perspective. Perspective, viewing, regarding, considering, contemplating... Seeing is only possible with at least some distance. Distance requires separation. The ancient rabbis describe the act of creation as an act of separation. For six days, creation continues to see. For six days, creation continues, seen from God's perspective. God separates the heavens and the earth, the light from the darkness, the upper waters from the lower waters and the sea from the dry land, and the moon from the sun. Now the ancient rabbis say, now let me just, I I know I've said the ancient rabbis say a number of times, and they seem to be saying contradictory things, but this is what the ancient rabbis do. And when I say the ancient rabbis say, I want you to know that what I really mean is that Aviva Gottlieb Zorinberg says that the ancient rabbis say, and I just get it from her. She introduced me to the ancient rabbis. I had never met them before, not even one, not even in passing. And even if I'm not quoting directly Aviva Gottlieb Zorinberg, referencing the ancient rabbis, when I say the ancient rabbis say, I would never have discovered what the ancient rabbis do say had I not met them by way of Aviva Gottlieb Zornberg. She's one of the most original thinkers and writers about the biblical texts that I have ever encountered. I connected to her in such a way that I felt like she understands something that I'm always trying to understand. She understands it maybe by way of the ancient rabbis, but also by way of Lacan and Shakespeare and sociology and all kinds of crazy sources. When I read her, I see her trying to understand something about what it means to be a person existing in the world, inside of creation, uh, in communication, relationship with God and other people. And she understands, it seems like, this kind of mysterious, off-kilter thing that seems to be humanity. I always feel like if I met her, you know, like we immediately, we would just start talking about everything God and the Bible and Derrida, the great Gatsby and the tensions inherent in being created beings capable of love, desire, self-reflection, self-delusion, and self-doubt. You know how one does. I know we would because I just feel like I've been in this intimate conversation with her for more than like a decade. I did meet her once. I drove through a blizzard to hear her speak. And when I showed up, this place that could hold a thousand people. There were 18 of us. And afterwards, I asked if she would sign my copy of her first book, The Beginning of Desire. And when I handed it to her, she looked at it and she says, This looks well used. It was like a blessing that she blessed me. And then she wrote the inscription, and I took it and moved away a little bit and opened it and read it, and it said, best wishes, Aviva. She gets me, you know, she gets me. Aviva, riffing on the rabbis, writes that the act of separation as creation continues through Adam and Eve's expulsion from paradise, that they are not actually fully human until they are separated from complete intimacy with God and each other. Before they are sent out of the garden, they are one with God and each other, a sort of unity of psyche inside that creation. They're like infants who do not know where they end and their mothers begin, and like an infant, they have no self-awareness of their needs. They're hungry, and they cry. They're offered the breast, they eat. Adam and Eve could not see each other, they cannot long for or desire each other, or the God, which they knew intimacy, intimately, or the garden, which they only knew before. The Midrash addresses God's creation of Adam, saying that God formed him from the dust and then took him and captivated him by explaining to him the garden, explaining to him creation, and that Those words seduced him into a connectedness with the garden. But after Adam and Eve are forced to leave the garden, those words of seduction are still buried deep in the consciousness of Adam and Eve. When God separates Adam and Eve from the garden, they are able to see each other for the first time with their primal single-mindedness, one with God, one with each other, and this gives way to the separate minds of man, of woman, of God, and then they can see the garden for the first time, the garden that they were in the center of, and they experience desire for the first time. The secret words of creation were buried deep into their unconsciousness, and it moves them to desire a union with that creation. But that kind of unity is not possible outside of paradise. They must live in time, time between what they want, need, and the possibility of getting it. This is consciousness, self-consciousness. The knowledge that one is separate from God, separate from others, and in the oddest way may be separated from the self and separated from the created world. This is a mystery. How can this begin this story. That we would be given everything and left only with a desire for its possibility, but not the possibility to achieve it. The ancient rabbis don't have a conclusion.